welcome back to the Gentle Catholic Parenting Podcast, where we explore gentle, positive principles of parenting through the lens of our Catholic faith. I'm Kim Cameron Smith, and today we are going to be talking about a really important question. How can we raise healthy children when we didn't have a healthy childhood? This is such an important question, and I am delighted to be joined today by my special guest, Erin McCull Cup, who is the author of a new book from our Sunday visitor, All Things New, that speaks directly to this question. So, Erin, welcome. Thank you for being here. Can you introduce yourself to the listeners and tell us a little bit about your book? Sure, Kim. Thank you so much for having me on um, on your show. My name is Erin McColcup. I'm a wife, a mom, and a lay Dominican. Um, and I live out in Pennsylvania with my family. And I am also a survivor of developmental trauma, which is fancy pants talk for um, I had a rough time growing up. Um, and a lot of the you know scars that I scars and bad habits that I acquired growing up, um, I, I knew I did not want to bring into any future children's lives that I may have. So um, rather early on in adulthood, I embarked on a journey of trying to seek God's will and healing those things. And it's a long journey. It's a slow journey, but it is definitely worth it because it's not just about you know my future or my children's future. It's about eternity. So it's it's a really important task, this this healing. Wow. Wow, that is so true. And you know, I really appreciate what you're saying because many people, they think that they need, if they've had developmental trauma, they think they need to wait until they're completely healed to have children. But I have found, because, you know, I, I have suffered childhood trauma as well, I have found that becoming a parent actually helped me face some of those wounds. And on my show, I explore in particular the science of attachment and child development. And when you're a parent who was raised with abuse or neglect, you, you know, it, it's, it, it's in your face. So, you know, your own shortcomings and your own wounds, they're, they're, they really are brought to the forefront. So what are some challenges that you think in particular that, parents encounter when they have had um, their own trauma in childhood, when they want to promote healthy attachment in their children? Well, I think that the, um, probably the biggest hurdle is just the idea of, am I in a position to have children at all? Um, When I was, you know, pregnant with my first two children, I have twins. So um, I was pregnant with two children the first time. And um, I joined, it really brought up a lot of the pain um, of, and the fear of, okay, I know what I don't want to do. I know how I don't want to parent. How, how do I parent? Where will I find the love that I was not given? And so I joined this support group. And in that support group, I was one of the, I think I was the only pregnant woman in that group at that time. And the majority of people were saying, I will never have children. I am too messed up. Wow. And um, I, I that just, you know, struck fear into me. I was thinking, like, who do I think I am that I could do any better than any of these folks? Um, but what struck me the most about, when, you know, once my children were born and parenting them, and I'm going to say, like, I there are a lot of wounds 
that needed healing that I discovered in the writing of this book. Mm. Um, so I, I inflicted a lot of damage on my kids growing up, um, which is a, a, certainly a case of remorse and hopefully repentance at this point in my life. But, you know, even at the time, the, the lies that I had been told, um, that I deserved what I was getting, um, that they couldn't help themselves with raising my children, I discovered they really were lies <laughs> that, you know, yeah, God had, had right. created us to be, you know, loved and accepted and celebrated and pursued and, you know, all of those wonderful things attached to not tolerated. And so I, I think just that, that first piece of opening up to the possibilities of letting life into our lives as trauma survivors is the biggest hurdle. Perhaps. Yeah. And what you're saying, I think, is important because, you know, it takes humility and honesty to admit that we can have all of these really great intentions when we have children. When my first child was born, I imagined how it would be, but I found that I would come up against my own emotional limitations because of my background. And often I would be responding to um, my children and you know kids can do annoying things but often I found that I was responding to them and it didn't really have anything to do with what they were actually doing it was some it was triggering something in me and um so anyway I think what you're saying really um resonates with me because I think that I, I felt the same way I thought maybe I should never have children because I'm so messed up but I have found that if we can be honest with ourselves about our shortcomings it actually is, you know, becoming a parent, it's part of, we actually grow up with our children emotionally. We, are, we grow up emotionally while our children are growing up as well. Do you think yeah, that's I, true? I agree. We definitely can if we are open to that. Um, and I think another piece, and this happens to a lot of people who, you know, grow up or are survivors of developmental trauma, that there's a certain level of toxic perfectionism, th this, um, you have to get everything right. And if mm. you don't, then, you know, you're, you're not worth our time or, or, or you know, even food, <laughs> food on the table wow. or even that sort of thing. Right. Um, that um, I think, I know I came into parenting thinking, okay, well, I all, if I want to be a good parent, all I have to do is the exact opposite of what my parents did. <laughs> and, right. I mean, it was a start, <laughs> but it certainly wasn't the whole package. And there's this idea that I, I see, you know, in the people who say, I'm too messed up to ever have children. And then the people who like me went the other way and said, oh, I'll, I'll get everything right. I can do this right. Um, and no matter how badly your parents sinned or sinned and repented, uh, like we're all raised by sinners. So mm. the idea that there's anything we can do to do this perfectly is foolish and dare I say arrogant. And I say that with my own hand raised that there were certainly times in my life where I thought, you know, that I, I approached parenting with that level of arrogance. And I found even early on, it's just, it's, it's matured in my mind and I hope in my parenting that, um, it's not about being perfect. It's about seeking God's will that like, I, I keep saying, um, Jesus did not come to preach perfection, he came to preach repentance. Mm. He does say, um, you know, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, but that's because our heavenly per father is perfect because he lives in nothing but truth. 
And the truth is that we are fallen creatures in a fallen world. And if we try to convince ourselves, especially if we try to convince our children that we are perfect and they are not allowed to have any, you know, issues with anything we do, then that's not living in truth. That's not being perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So we are called to repentance. We are called to change. We are called to admit when we've messed up. And wow. that's like a big part wow. of the, I know, you know, we, we, you, you talk about the roots of attachment, um, but a big part of um, attachment in, in any of those, those six aspects is the rupture repair cycle. And I talk about mm-hmm. that in my book, that the importance of, you know, relationships, the, the connection and relationships isn't necessarily formed when we do things perfectly. It's when we, you know, create a rupture, see a rupture, acknowledge it and repair it. Yeah, and for me, the the thing um, that's really important, and it's what you know we didn't have in our own childhood, is the parent takes responsibility for that rupture and repair. It's not the child's responsibility. And one thing that I took from your story was that often you were made to feel like it was your job to repair the rupture. Right, and, and actually, so, it's funny that that like that leaked into uh, like I you know quickly identified myself rather early on in my healing as I was the family scapegoat, and mm. I kind of brought that into my parenting. So I sort of went too far the other way, in okay. that you know my parents would never take responsibility, so I took everybody's responsibility for everything, which is great in terms of you know my kids have heard me apologize. But they've also seen me try to fix things that they were perfectly capable of fixing themselves. Because yeah, yeah, because I'm thinking work out okay. Yeah, because when I think of taking responsibility, I mean, um, yeah, I don't mean like taking responsibility. Like if it's you know Jimmy's job to do the dishes tonight, then I go do the dishes. I don't mean that. I mean if something is not working in my relationship with my five-year-old child. It is my responsibility as the parent to find a way to heal the rupture. It's not the child's responsibility. And that is the thing that I find that, ha- that is often toxic in some of, some of us who suffered abuse in childhood is we are made to feel that whether the relationship survived depended on us. That yeah. is not okay. That is not okay. And so your message that in any relationship, even in relationships, um, you know, parent-child relationships where the attachment is secure, there will be ruptures. And indeed, there will be times when the child is very unhappy with what you're doing in there. So being securely attached doesn't mean you're running around through tulips. So there will be rupture, but in the healthy relationship, there is a way to bridge it. There's a way to get the connection back. And also that is the place where the children learn their, you know, the the skill that hopefully that they will be able to use when they are parents to own problems and, Mm. you know, and, and see where their responsibility begins and where their child's responsibility begins. You know, when a child, the the child response, child's responsibility eventually grows, but they don't come out being able to be responsible for much of anything. So yeah, a lot of it, you know, it starts on the parent Mm. and it's, it's a delicate dance as kids grow because what they are capable of, I am learning, um, you know, it changes so quickly before we know it. And yeah, it's just a matter of, you know, growing that attunement in spite of, and through the challenges that come with having 
a brain and a body that, you know, wants to fight or flee or Mm. fawn or freeze whenever there's any sort of conflict. And anybody who's had a toddler knows that yeah, conflict. <laughs> it's a daily yes. thing. And <laughs> teenagers. Yeah, and, yeah, and, and, and teenagers. And tweens and, you know, even even colic is a conflict, really. Yeah. You know, if you've ever had a colicky baby, it's this pressure to, you know, this this child is my responsibility and this child can't stop crying. What do I do? And I think when you've been wounded, I don't know if this is true for you, but, you know, when I did have, you know, colicky babies or something wasn't working for my child and they were either very sad or frustrated, I felt like I was doing something wrong because I did not have good boundaries, like with what was my responsibility and what wasn't. And I realized like growing up in my mothering that, frustration is part of life and part of my job as the mother is just to actually help the child survive the frustration not to remove the frustration right it's that art of teaching our children how to hang on the cross Mm, Um, whatever that cross may be whether that cross is you know losing the spelling bee or whether that cross is a friend has just overdosed yeah you know the the cross or you know you didn't get into the college you wanted or whatever it's that art of teaching our children to hang on the cross and that, like that that example i gave of colic um it's actually become even though my youngest is 11 um my that the relationship that's involved in colic has really just come into my heart spiritually lately because i'm pr- trying to practice being with those uncomfortable emotions being with my children when they are experiencing emotions that are uncomfortable for all of us. Cause like you said, I was also taught that, you know, everybody's re- emotions are my responsibility. Um, it's my job to make everybody feel better right now. And, um, I've come to realize that colic, I wish I had known this when my kids were colicky. I so wish I had known this. It's an opportunity for us to learn and to teach our children at that very young age that we are there for them no matter what. We don't have to change their emotions to make us feel better because that is the image and likeness of God the Father. Mm. He could have, you know, just wiggled his nose <laughs> if he had one. Um, it, Jesus could have wiggled his nose and put an end to the crucifixion. Look at his split. Didn't have to do it. But no, he stayed with his son through that trauma and you know it's god the father is not like our earthly parents who pressured us cajoled us manipulated us into making our emotions more convenient for them and so we don't have to pressure or control conjole or control our children into making their emotions more comfortable for us we are all allowed to have our spectrum of emotions and as long as we hang on to that cross as long as it takes there will be a resurrection at the end mm, i love that In your book, you talk about enmeshment, and it really struck me. I read it. It's it's in for the listeners. It's in chapter two of Aaron's book. It is really fascinating because I think some people interpret enmeshment as intense love. Can you explain to us what is enmeshment? How do you know you're looking at it in a relationship and? How does enmeshment affect healthy child development? 
That's a really big question, and I love it. Now, if we've got any uh, mental health professionals who are listening, um, feel free to be very amused at my very um, <laughs> layperson definition of enmeshment, but here goes. Um, enmeshment is the state where people don't experience in relationship where one person ends and another begins. So as an example, um, if my, okay, I had an example with one of my daughters this week. Um, I asked her to put plastic wrap over a platter that was going to a party. And it was just happens to be very, very sticky plastic wrap. And she, you know, wanted me to do it for her. And the old me would have been like, oh, yeah, you're right. That's too hard. I'll do it for you, thinking, hey, aren't I the hero? That's an enmeshed response because that's my way of saying your feelings of frustration are my feelings of frustration, and I don't want to deal with it. So I'm going to take over this thing that you can learn how to do. Mm. What I chose to do, and it's like it's such a small thing, but when, you know, boundaries are new. The opposite of meshment is healthy boundaries. When healthy boundaries are, you know, so relatively new to a person, it doesn't feel right at first, but then afterwards there's a trophy. And it's funny, like I want to say the, the word, how the word trophy came up. This, you know, my kid got through several sheets of plastic wrap before she was able to wrap it successfully. And she's like, this is a waste. Look at all this wasted plastic wrap. I said, that's not a waste. That's a trophy. Mm, that's, interesting. that's a trophy that shows that you've learned how to do this and now it's going to be easier next time and I'm like you yeah. want to keep it she's like no <laughs> okay so enmeshment is is it when you feel like you need to save somebody like you said initially it's when you um you don't know where I th guess I interpret it as you don't know where you end and the other person begins. Right. And it can be, um, I need to save you from your discomfort. It can also be things like, um, if I lose my temper at my child and the child starts to yell, like cry, enmeshment tells me that this, I can't bear this child's pain. So I have a right to demand that this child fix this pain so I don't feel bad anymore. Mm. So it can go the, I can, it's overbearing. Enmeshment is overbearing, basically. It's breaking okay. the boundaries between where, you know, my thoughts and feelings end and others begin. Um, and I like I, the, and the enmeshment, it actually, it's like, it, it, it reminds me of the word net because you're almost like, holding the person down you're not yeah. allowing yeah yeah and you know what else it reminds me of is um gordon New newfeld often talks about this concept of alpha and everyone thinks of alpha uh, and, it, and it is this it's like a dominating child who controls you and orchestrates your home that is true that is alpha but the alpha complex can also manifest in helpers and people who have an impulse, like a need to help, even when the help is not needed and even when the help actually hurts somebody. Like one example I often give is you're driving down the freeway and you have this uncontrollable need to get out of your car and help at the scene of an accident when you have no um, 
capability to really help and you're actually hindering the ambulance from getting there. And mm-hmm. so I know people like this in my life who oh, many I've people. Oh, I've been that person. I'm cringing. Oh, to, <laughs> oh I'm totally. Person. Okay, that's me. I'm a helper, Alpha. I want to help you with problems you don't even know you have. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's totally yeah. me. And I've totally done that in my parenting. And my eyes are really opening to you know, not just A, that I've done it, but B, how toxic it is as a result of writing this book. Like I I came into writing this book thinking like, you know, I've learned so much. God has mm. taught me so many healing things. And then as I'm doing the research, I'm like, ooh, wow, I'm, I'm really not doing a great job. Not that I thought I was doing a fantastic job before, but my eyes were really opened. And so, you know, that that's why like I'm, I'm really grateful to have been given this opportunity to to write and share this book. But I'm I'm also like grateful to God to keep me humble enough to tell people like don't listen to me, <laughs> don't, mm. don't listen to me for like you know example of perfection. Listen to God because God's got the answers. I'm, I'm my job is just to point you to Him. Yeah, and all you're really doing is you're sharing your experience and some of that. I mean, because I, I just totally disagree with people who say, you know, because I'm not a I'm not a mental health professional either, but I write as well from my own experience, and I'm very curious about attachment science. And you know, I am far from perfect, but I can share from my imperfection and, like you said, point to the perfect one. And I don't believe that only perfect people and 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 this is the one thing I love about Gordon Newfeld is he actually teaches parents and teachers his developmental paradigm because those are the people that are have boots on the ground interacting with children. And so he respects the um, you know, intuitive wisdom of parents and teachers. And and anyway, so I totally I agree with you. I'm in the same place that sometimes I'm in my writing and in my work, I realize a blind spot, but that is part of my work, is that I share that, wow, I did not know this before. I didn't realize that I was a helper alpha. I just learned that a, a couple of years ago. I just thought I was being helpful, and sometimes I'm not. <laughs> but the reason I brought that up is, don't you think that's kind of um, connected to enmeshment? It's when I don't know I mean, of course, I want to dive in and help somebody at the scene of an accident, but sometimes it is not my place. It is somebody else's. Somebody else is in a better position to really help. Yeah, I'm. I'm totally on board with that being one of the many awful faces of enmeshment. That this idea that um, I, I don't matter unless I'm helping, and a lot of that comes from the the experience of being raised in an environment where we were not cherished just for existing where mm. we had to some degree earn our keep. You had to perform to right. be loved. Yes. Perform to be loved or even just perform to escape censure <laughs> for mm. lack of a better term. Like I, I've, you know, heard people, you know, in, in different um, scenarios describing their childhood. And like, you know, I had to be perfect or else in order to get love. And I'm like, I had to be perfect just not to be screamed at. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that whole idea of um, if, if I help these people, I will get their approval and I will be okay is very much an, an enmeshment behavior, enmeshed behavior. And part of getting good boundaries is accepting that we don't need human approval every minute of every day. We need to experience those times of not getting human approval so that we can cultivate an ear for that voice of God inside of our hearts, loving us, and being glad we exist 
every moment of our lives so that when we do face those times of conflict, when we do face the times that our, our kids trigger us just because they're humans, they're just fallen humans doing their fallen human thing like the rest of us, that it, I don't crumble, that mm-hmm. I can hang on to, to the God who hung on the cross for me. Yeah, and don't you think that when you're addicted to human approval, because, you know, it can be an addiction, you can be addicted to the head nod from others, you are not, your eyes are not on God. You, yeah. If we, oftentimes when we're following what God wants us to do in our lives, we experience disapproval. And when you have grown up with trauma, that is really hard. It pushes your face into your wounds. And... um but yeah, you're right. I mean, the, there is no answer other than to just follow God's lead because he will um, lead you out of your brokenness. And that actually leads me, I want to ask you one more question before we end today. There was this moment in your book that stopped me in my tracks. I reread it because it is so important. Okay, so I'm going to read this quote. And for the listeners, it's on page 30. Cling to the truth no matter how scary or painful it is. And you can only be clinging to the good, holy, unfailing perfection that is the eternal love of Christ. This is very true. Sometimes we want to avoid looking at the truth about the pain of our childhood or even, you know, our own failures as parents. Um, and I think it's because we are fearing something. We are fearing either losing the relationships from our childhood or we're fear, I mean, we lo- losing the relationships like our, our family of origin are losing our child's, like, our, like we think our child doesn't notice that we've messed up, right? So I think that in both cases, being honest with ourselves about the wounds of our childhood and our, our, our imperfections in our own parenting I think it actually frees us eventually. So I was wondering if you could share a little bit about that. Like, what is your experience? Like, what led you to write that? And how did facing the truth about your childhood heal you? Well, I think, like, I I can't really take a lot of credit for this. And I don't even think I really wrote about it in the book. But um, my reversion story, if you go to my website, erinmccolcup.com, on the first page, scroll down to, there's a link to my reversion story. Um, I was, <laughs> in college, I was cast in a play about child abuse. And um, the first night that we were working, the, the one scene that, that I was in. Um, I basically had a nervous breakdown on the set or on the stage in front of the whole cast. And I just knew like something was wrong. Like this is not a normal reaction for somebody to have to something like fictional. So I just remember like just everything seemed so tumultuous. There was nothing in my life at that time that I could hold on to. Everything seemed like a lie. So that night I remember I went back to my dorm room and just kind of sat there and stared at a like a blanket and a wall intermittently and said, because I wasn't even, you know, practicing any really faith at the time. Um, I just said, God or whatever you are, I want to know the truth because I know that's solid. Whatever it is, Mm. I want to know it. And whenever you ask God that question, he never disappoints. He always provides the solid thing. And that's, that's really comes back to attachment. Attachment Mm -hmm. is having something secure, having a secure relationship in your life. And like, as 
you know, we all strive for secure attachments or to develop secure, uh, what's it called? Secure earned attachment, whatever. I can't remember the exact term. You probably remember what it is, but um, no matter what, we're still trying to attach. We are designed to attach to people and people are fallen creatures. So we're all going to fail each other at some point. So when we, as we mature, develop an attraction to being attached to truth that will help us fish out those places where we are enmeshed, where we need better boundaries, where we are hurting other people and need to make amends. The truth will never let us down because it's always Mm. there. Mm. Did your, when you, um, when you started facing the truth about your childhood, did, did anyone from your childhood, were they willing to face the truth with you? Would you, do you have siblings that Ooh. took the same, <laughs> I mean, did, were you the only no. one in your, okay. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, yeah, no, I, I've, I, the, I, I write in the book about um, having to go, it's called go no contact. Uh, I, yeah. I'm no longer in contact with one of my parents. Um, my other two <laughs> remaining family members of origin, we are very low contact because um, yeah, there's, there's nothing but pressure for me to make everybody feel better by not not saying the truth anymore and um and you're the troublemaker because you're yeah, telling the truth. <laughs> yeah it, it's it's all my fault because I'm I'm not making everybody feel better and um like I, I I tried living that way before and it didn't work and like I my my children are watching me that's why I dedicate the book to my kids with the words, like, they will glee- gleefully tell you how often I fail to take my advice. <laughs> they, just, they, they know all my failings. There's no yeah. point hiding them. But, like, it's it's really important. So they're watching me. They're all, our kids are watching us. They're supposed to. They were designed to. And mm. if I am not living in truth, they're they're not stupid. They'll know it. And No, it's really hard because when you... um. Yeah, you know, you want to, people say, oh, you need to forgive, you need to forgive. Well, you can forgive without opening yourself up to further abuse. And so sometimes the answer is just to set that hard boundary that you talk about in your book. Right. And there's, there's more detail in there. But the one thing that like, I was so like, shocked and freed, set free when I discovered was that Jesus's love is, God's love is unconditional. His mercy, however, actually has a condition on it. It's in the Bible. I was shocked when I discovered this. God's mercy is free and abundant and limitless for the repentant. Mm, that's right. It is for the prodigal son who comes back and says, what I did was I sinned against heaven and against you. And this is what I am. And make me a servant. I don't deserve any any better. The, the just the power of repentance to heal relationships and the destructive power of stubbornness to destroy it, it just it's breathtaking so there's just i want to any anybody who's listening who has been you know given that pressure that forgiveness and reconciliation are the same thing they're not the same thing no um we actually if there is an unrepentant family member who is demanding access to our children and we have very little reason to believe that that person will refrain from hurting our children, then that's, that's kind of on us. Um, right. Right. I, I didn't want to go. That's one of the main reason why I stopped having contact with one of my pa- parents is because 
I didn't want to go to have it go to my soul review and have to, <laughs> have to answer. Yeah, that's right. You know, for, yeah, for what happened to my kids? And, and don't what, you what think? Were taught. And I think that it's a um, a really important way to model for our children how you handle those situations in their own lives where clearly a relationship is unhealthy that there are boundary issues and that it is oh that you know there's this idea this current in our culture that oh just be nice like you just have to be nice and then it's okay sometimes doing the right thing doesn't feel very nice to the other person and you may actually be doing the right thing by just setting that hard boundary and not letting other people hurt you anymore because that's not doing them any good. Yeah. Giving people more opportunities to sin is not a great way to help somebody get to heaven. Mm. And we can continue praying for them. We can pray for them. Yeah. Yeah. There are all sorts of limits on that. And it's not like, it's not, it's not a, you know, an option to be taken lightly by any means. Um, you know, cause I, on the one hand, like, you know, I'm human. I have my doubts. I, every once in a while, I, I think like as my, you know, I've, as I have grown in healing, I've discovered more and more how many unhealthy relationships I had in my life. And so those people have slowly faded out of our lot not slowly faded, but you know, people, there are fewer people in our lives now because I was surrounded by so many people <laughs> who weren't healthy. And so I, I don't relish the idea that I'm teaching my children that, well, if you don't like somebody, you just cut them off. Because that's not what right. I'm trying to teach them. I'm trying to teach right. them if you are being treated badly, you have no obligation to stay. Right. Uh, because that's that's a lesson they need when they, you know, if, if that's God's will, choose their vocations. Mm. Yes. Aaron, I, I really want to thank you for, um, I mean, it takes a lot of courage to be vulnerable in the way you are vulnerable in the book. Aaron's book, it is fantastic. It is a very important book. It's a gift that many parents need in their lives. She has great wisdom and insight, and she's very honest. And um, so, Aaron, where can listeners find your book, and where, where can they find you? Okay, so um, if you've got one in your neighborhood, go to your local Catholic bookstore because they are small business people who could use the boost. And they're also usually a great, you know, source of um, community, you know, for people of faith. So that's great. Um, and ask them to order all things new, Breaking the Cycle and Raising a Joyful Family. Family. It's from Our Sunday Visitor. So you can also go to OurSundayVisitorBooks.com, I believe it is. Um, yeah. You can also go to any of your favorite um, we even grudgingly favorite online purveyors of books. <laughs> <laughs> Not dropping the actual name here. I um, know, right? <laughs> um, but also, if you um, would like to uh, get in touch with me directly or take a look at some of my the resources available to um, to trauma survivors trying to raise our, our own families and <laughs> reparent ourselves, you can go to my website, erinmccolecup.com. Com, that's cup with two P's at the end, so like coffee cup, but with an extra P. And yeah, the, all the stuff is there, including links to buy the buy uh, all things new and my other books. Wonderful, and I'll link to Erin's book and her website um, on my website, kimcameronsmith.com. Pray for us as we will for you. God bless you all. Have a great day. 